I'm Maxwell Suzuki, and you're listening to the Passengers Prosecast. I'm Max Suzuki, the prose editor at Passengers Journal, where our mission is to publish compelling art that is necessary rather than desired. You're listening to the Passengers Prose Cast for Volume 4, Issue 2, where we discuss what makes the prose featured in our current issue so compelling and necessary. Today, I'll be joined by a special guest who will be co-hosting with me, our editor-in-chief, Anna Genevieve Winham. Say hello, Anna. Uh, hi, Max. Uh, thank you for having me on the show this time. Yeah, of course. Uh, just to start off, um, we have a new issue available in print. Um, you can go to our website, um, and there's a tab that should show you the, sh- the shopping option, and it will take you to the right place. So just to give you a quick little announcement on that. Just, I was going to say we're super excited about it because it's our first ever issue that we've produced uh, in print. And I just want to give a little shout out to poetry editor Andrea Chaplinski for doing the layout and design on that. Definitely encourage everyone to buy it. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Andrea. If you want to, Anna, we can hop right into the the stories that we have. Sure, I would love to. Uh, You chose a a couple of really great pieces to discuss today. I'm excited to talk about them. Absolutely. Which one should we start with? We have two. Should we start with Story and Clock by Junie Nelson? And it's voiced by Tia Renee Brandon. Um, So here is a quick little audio excerpt for you. Brock is busy dying. But I am thinking of Reggie this morning and the way he played piano. He played and played all winter. First scales, hours on end, taught himself, tentative at first. He played with an index finger, long and slender, reaching down and pressing with a light and hesitant touch, tender-like, soft, as his nature. He rested his whole hand on the ivory, measured the length of his fingers by the black keys, learned the sound of the notes, natural. Like that, he was feeling the basic sounds as if in his bones, trying out different rhythms and octaves, relating to sound, as if sound was a person. I said, used to be a stack of sheet music around here. Reggie went looking, found some in the shed, boxed up long ago by Aunt Lillian, whose piano it was Reggie now was playing. Story and Clark, upright and stiff-backed, like Lily in that piano. Been here for generations, but Lillian was the only one could play. After she died of cancer, silence. The piano sat in the front room, by the window, dust felting the keys until my boy Reggie picked up where Lillian left off. All right. Um, So now that you've heard a little excerpt from Story and Clark, uh, Anna, you want to jump right in and and we can discuss? Yeah, that sounds great. Well, I mean, I, I also hope that people will hop onto the Passengers website and listen to the whole story because the tension that comes through in the passage that you just heard is, I think, really built on in a magnificent way throughout the whole story, this tension between life and death and Mm -hmm. a life worth living and a dying with dignity and the things that you do for the people you love and how tragic 
that can be, even when you're making a choice that you feel like it's the right one and there's no other one to make, how tragic that can be. I think this piece was just so powerful because you see the kind of intergenerational musicality uh, in some members of this family, but you also see the kind of layers of death and dying and caretaking in this family. And I just thought the way the way that those layers built over the course of the piece and gradually seemed to dissolve again over the course of the piece, you know, it was one of those pieces where you knew where it was going kind of from the get-go and you just watched the whole tragic but beautiful thing unfolds. So that's one reason why I really love this piece. Mm-hmm. How about you, Max? Yeah, I think what really drew me in, yeah, the that dichotomy between life and death is just very mm. plain and out there, especially the second paragraph where they mention Aunt Lillian, mm-hmm. who you can you can tell that, I mean, the, the, the author says that she died of cancer. Um, and so you have this thread of death and end of life coming through the whole piece. Um, what I found really interesting, and I, I'd hope to kind of discuss with you, but the story starts off with talking about Brock, yeah. Brock dying, but then switches to Reggie, um, which uh, mm-hmm. is a really interesting way to go about talking about death. Later on in the story, you kind of come back to that, but it is interesting. And I'd like to get kind of your idea on on why the narrator focuses on Reggie in the beginning, as opposed to Brock, who is more pressing to learn about. Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I feel like the way that I interpret it is that it makes death and dying commonplace Mm. to almost just mention it and then brush it aside, which in modern Western culture is not how death is treated at all. Death is treated as an aberration. It's treated as something separate from life. Mm. But I think as we we read throughout the story, death is very much just a, a... a part of life it's a thing that happens it's a thing that is inevitable it's a thing that's woven into Reggie's childhood and so I think yeah mentioning Brock is busy dying and then moving immediately to Reggie moving immediately to the young person the living person makes death just seem like it's not makes it seem like it's not separate from life but I think it also does this thing where it sets up the end of the story so that you get that effect like we were talking about you know where it's going from the Mm get-go you know you know that this isn't going to be a story about surprising you or a twist ending no this is a story that drama of it is to watch the thing happen that you Mm -hmm. already knew was going to happen that the author already told you what was going to happen Mm -hmm. which you know is like death itself (laughs) Mm -hmm. we we all know it's going to happen it's inevitable and so it's in a way, it's the story of all of us uh, to start it out this way, to let you know what the ending is going to be, and then go kind of pull back and tell you about the people who will still be living. Yeah. Um, did you have any other thoughts about that line, that opening line? Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting, I think, also that the story itself, focusing on Reggie, also kind of goes into the piano, him, him playing the piano and connecting him with Aunt Lillian. And I thought I thought it was really fascinating for, you know, there are a few moments that Brock is with uh, Reggie and and there's a moment uh, later on in the piece where Reggie is playing and then they, they're discussing basically should Brock go to hospice and, and how that will kind of work out, how to pay for it. And knowing how much 
the piano to Reggie uh, means because Reggie himself really enjoys playing the piano, is connected through family. And, and so it means a lot to him. And to see him kind of suggesting we can sell the piano when is really tough for him kind of means a lot to the narrator and to Reggie how much Brock means to them. And, and so you kind of get this thread of throughout the whole, whole story, this tension where the narrator and Reggie uh, are, are really kind of rooting for Brock, trying to you know, make him as comfortable as possible as he's dying, because, you know, we obviously know the inevitable. Right. And Brock himself is just trying to allow Reggie and the narrator to kind of process even before he's gone. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. So th- those are my thoughts. Do you have any kind of additional on that? Yeah, I guess you mentioned that moment where Reggie suggests selling the piano. Yeah. And the, the way that it's first written is we could sell the piano. Mm-hmm. But then just a few lines later, uh, it said again, Reggie and me, we knew we had to sell the piano. Mm-hmm. And so I, I like, again, that tension between um, choice and fate. I think it really does a great job painting that picture between thinking, yes, this is a personal choice that Reggie, the eight-year-old, wants to do to make Brock comfortable in his last days. But also it feels like it feels like there's no other choice. Mm. Uh, it feels like they have to sell the piano. It feels like, of course, he's going to do that. That's what love is as much as he would love to pay, play the piano he loves Brock more uh, and I thought that that was stunning and terrible mm-hmm. <laughs> beautiful and tragic part of this piece mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it is is definitely a, a gut punch and very sad so I, I think the only other kind of thing I, I would like to discuss on this is the the author's style so mm. throughout throughout the piece there are moments that are very sharp, very descriptive. And then sometimes they get into really specific parts of it. And I think, at, at least in the first you know, few paragraphs, not only sharp, but very almost lyrical, as if to like kind of match the idea of, the, of Reggie you know, playing music. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that's also kind of something that drew me into this piece. It says as much as it needs to, um, and really no more. You know, as the reader, we can fill those moments in. So yeah, I mean, did did you notice that those kinds of that kind of lyricality and what kind of parts did you think you focused on? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I really noticed the way that the author used periods to break up sentences mm-hmm. to add longer pauses, and I definitely thought that that felt like musical phrases were being played like immediately from the get go. It felt rhythmic, and I also really thought. It's not exactly the same, but I really liked the way that the author wrote how the characters spoke because they're speaking a non-standard American English that itself, I mean, people often write language in a way that people don't actually speak. Mm -hmm. People don't speak in full sentences. People don't even speak in full words. But the way that the author actually wrote the speech very much is how people actually speak and is here especially and the the way that the author writes the way that people think the way that people speak um it's fluid and rhythmic as well so i definitely thought that that tied into um this idea that the author actually ends on the last line 
So enough, Reggie said, tapping his fingers on the table, his feet on the ground, all that music inside him. The fact that there was this rhythmic sensation throughout the whole piece made me think of the music inside the piece, the music inside this author, the way that that kind of mirrored nicely. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's so many layers of that that musical aspect that I felt really just worked in this piece. And I, I, I'm happy that you you honed in on that final sentence because at that moment, you really understand how deeply Reggie, Reggie loves uh, Brock and Reggie loves the narrator. I think that is a good moment to, to settle on. And I think I, I just love the fact that they're referencing music. There's the piano. It's very lyrical. Um, it all kind of comes together at, in that moment. So, mm-hmm. so yeah. Yeah, fantastic piece. Mm-hmm. Really glad that we got to publish this one. Well, thank you so much for discussing the story in Clark with me. And the next piece we'll be discussing is Ossify by Matthew Bowman. And it's read by Charles Fleming. And right now you'll be hearing an audio excerpt of Ossify. During the first trimester... My wife would stand sideways in front of me and slouch along the S of her spine. Look at this, she'd say, as if the small bump in her belly was showing more than it was. But really, she wanted me to look with my imagination, to see what the pictures show us in the book about the pregnant body. The changes happening inside, invisible to the naked eye. Clusters of cells forming into spine, brain, heart, organs, thoughts, and dreams electrifying to life. At week 16, she said, the bones have started to ossify. I understood the word in context. Hardening. Bone becoming bone. Becoming what it is. What it will be. At the previous ultrasound... We witnessed our developing fetus punching and kicking against the walls of my wife's uterus. Not that she could feel it. This little leap of imagination from her belly to the overhead monitor, almost ghost-like, as the form appeared and disappeared under the roving wand. And then, the watery heartbeat started pulsing through the speakers. Wow, 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 wow. 160 beats per minute. The heart's drum... Firm, rhythmic, becoming convinced of itself. All right. Now that you've heard a little excerpt of Ozify, Anna, you want to kick us off uh, with, with a few discussion points? Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like more and more often I'm having discussions with people my age and a little bit older and a little bit younger about whether or not they plan to have children. And... So often there's a refrain, which is, how could you bring kids into this world when, you know, (laughs) everything is going to be on fire by 2050? Mm -hmm. How can you do that? And this summer, with all of the wildfire smoke reaching even places like New York, Mm -hmm. you know, it's really, it just feels so prescient to have this piece that handles the subject in a really thoughtful way but it's not the way that I hear most people talking about it, Mm -hmm. uh, or it doesn't come to the same conclusions as the way that I hear most people talking about it, which I think is, is really, I mean, at least it gives me, (laughs) I don't know if I could call it hope, but it gives me a little bit of uh, 
broader mindset, I feel like reading reading this piece. I really enjoyed once again the tension, mm-hmm. <laughs> always the tension uh, <laughs> between focusing on the young activists, even referencing like Greta Thunberg, mm-hmm. uh, and then this man who's obviously a bit older, being the voice of the of the essay. I really, I really enjoy that contrast that comes up again and again throughout the piece, mm-hmm. and this idea of kind of time passing as something grows, like marking time through the growth of a new thing. Um, All, all, yeah, all of those, all of those themes I really appreciated throughout this piece. So that was a lot. Yeah, no, absolutely. (laughs) A lot of different things. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I can um, also speak to, you know, I I grew up, grew up in a a part of Alaska where we had uh, glaciers and I, you know, I've seen Mm. those glaciers melt year by year. And so this piece focusing on, climate change and and how that's going to affect future generations is really uh, very pressing. Um, and so I think this author also, yeah, what, as you were saying, is, is is very interesting because they're given all the same facts as, you know, everyone else. The world is heating up. There's a lot of wildfires, things of that nature. And even still, they, they go a, a different route than you would new, usually think the pessimistic kind of view of, of how the world is working. And I think it mm-hmm. is also just a very interesting way that they have this inter- internal discussion with themselves and then internal discussion with their wife about about the child and whether they should bring a child into the world or not. And I like how this piece kind of resolves itself by going, look at look at Greta Thunberg, you know, look at these people that have done so much for the planet and give the narrator himself some hope. And I, th- I think that was kind of something that is, is really just beautiful in, in my read of it and how all, all the, given all the facts, all the things that could mean that uh, the world isn't going to be how it is. And, and that's going to be tough for our future generation that the narrator still chooses uh, to look on, on the side of, of hope and on the side of desiring more from, from people. There's definitely that aspect of it. Um, the other aspect of, as you were kind of discussing how the bones are kind of forming, this idea of ossification, that things are becoming. And mm-hmm. I think that is a very interesting way to go about this as well, because uh, you have this idea of climate change and this idea of a child not yet there. Um, and those are both are very new ideas in, you know, trying to, to fight, fix and fight climate change and also to kind of bring a child into, into this world. So I, I like how those, those two parallel. And, and it's, it's just really interesting to not only kind of discuss nature, but also kind of looking at how we affect the planet and, and how we can make that better. Yeah, I really, yeah, I like that idea and that theme of humans being nature or humans being natural that comes up kind of throughout this piece. And I think you really see it in a very clever way in that last paragraph where um, he lists the words that are on the signs that people are carrying at this environmental protest. And so the signs are, there is no planet B, I stand with science, water is life, protect mother earth. And I think out of the, out of the four of those, there are three <laughs> that remind me of of birth, of motherhood, of 
like human reproduction. And I think in particular thinking about, because it's literally talking about this, this fetus in the womb at this time. And that makes me think about the water is life and think about how we all come from, from water and how that's been referenced in the environmental movement. And then the final one being protect mother earth. I feel like he's making a fairly subtle point that uh, we, you know, if we're, if we're really think of the, thinking of the earth as mother earth, thinking of ourselves as part of nature, we can't disconnect from that sentiment itself. Uh, and he doesn't seem to be, he doesn't seem to be decrying anyone else's choices, you know, to have children or not have children. But I think that he is connecting his choice, be the parent of this child, to uh, mm -hmm. the way that the environmental movement often theorizes the natural environment as uh, a mother or as like a nurturing figure. Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's really a, a good way for him to, to connect those those two ideas, two threads that he's kind of making into it to one holistic idea. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's kind of what, what I really enjoy. I also think the piece as a whole, as we're kind of discussing kind of asks these big, big questions that obviously it doesn't need to answer. Um, that's kind of out into the, out into <laughs> the ether, out, out into to us as, as readers and as people kind of think through but I like how, how it presents these ideas of, you know, how will our children change the environment and how will that kind of affect us? And really, like, one of the main questions he, he discusses is having a child worth it in this moment. And he seems to answer that question, you know, after seeing Greta Thunberg. And then finally, just like, what does it mean to be a parent now that how, how much harm we've done to our planet? And I think those are huge questions that, uh, that are really pressing and really important for for every individual. Even the author kind of digests those questions without kind of asking them him, to himself, and he kind of settles on an, on his own answers. And I, I, I like how it is very open ended. It doesn't judge people for having their yeah. own ideas, but it, it does kind of say, "Here are kind of what I believe, and this is why I'm going to have kids." Those are like the big questions, the big thoughts. Do you have any kind of ideas on that as well, Anna? Yeah, I guess it's mentioned early on that he was ambivalent about the question of having children. Mm -hmm. And I think that that ambivalence kind of shines through in a way that allows him to explore without judgment, as you mentioned, like both the reasons that people choose not to have children mm -hmm. and the people, the reasons why people choose to. And it's a little, I mean, he, he said that he acquiesced, basically, mm -hmm. which I don't think is actually a passive thing to do, you know, because he said he was ambivalent. And so he, he ultimately agreed because his wife's desire to have a child was stronger than his desire not to have a child. Mm -hmm. But I think that that kind of makes an interesting contrast to when he later says uh, that he realizes that his child doesn't have to be a passive victim of circumstances. So he realizes that the child, in whatever situation it is, will be able to make their own choices about what to do and how to be in the world. And I think this idea of becoming what you are really like shines through over and over. I like when he thinks back to all of the horrors of the 20th century <laughs> and mm -hmm. notes that people continued becoming then. 
And I think this is where the this is where the thing that I, I can't quite call it hope because it's not quite you know he's not that fully committed to it. Mm, <laughs> but there's kind of like an ambivalent potentiality of hope or something like that that comes through with this idea that maybe we are becoming something else, or maybe the world will become something else uh, as as we become something else. Oh yeah, so I was just going to say, so even the the author himself is describing him his his becoming. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, his potentiality, and then I think also just like our potentiality as a species, with almost this idea that it could mm-hmm. go either way, right? Like things could go badly for sure, but there's this potential mm-hmm. that they could go in a different direction than they have been going. <laughs> uh, do you have any other kind of thoughts to to this this piece or to Story and Clark? Yeah, I mean, I guess the the one other thing that I just want to mention about this piece is that every time we get to publish um, an essay or a piece of creative nonfiction, I love getting to include that in passages. And I would just say to anyone who's listening, who's submitting to us, <laughs> that um, don't hesitate to submit um, essays in creative nonfiction because we love them. Absolutely, yeah. I, I love I love just reading. Um, things about the climate, I, I mean, but also just about motherhood, fatherhood, things of that nature are, are really interesting to me. And I think uh, Ossify really embodies those those moments really well. Um, so thank you so much, Anna, for, for being on with me. Um, Thanks for having me. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for joining for the podcast. A, a special thank you to Buka Bro for the music you heard on the show today. Their work is available across music platforms. Um, Please find the pieces featured here alongside many more in our current issue at PassengersJournal.com. Join us next month for our Passengers Poetry Cast, where members of our poetry staff will discuss what makes the poetry featured in our current issue both necessary and compelling. Are you interested in contributing to the journal or joining our team? Please find our open calls on Submittable and our staff application on the staff page of our website. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for all the latest passengers news.